I'd like for you to open to the book of Hebrews tonight. The book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I had a title come to my mind this week. It's Clues for the Clueless. Clues for the Clueless. We have all heard people talk about cluelessness. You know, you've probably said or heard somebody say, well, I don't think they have a clue as to what's going on. Or, you know, he's clueless, which means they really don't know what's going on. They don't know what to do. You just don't know any better. But let's read our text in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used, or the people identified you with others like you and began to persecute you, called a gazing stock. Now, it's interesting that in this particular verse, if you read a verse and you think about what it said and what's that supposed to mean, it begins by saying, remember the former days. That would be in the beginning of your Christian life. When, after God opened your eyes and showed you something, gave you a revelation, you endured a great fight of afflictions. And one has to stop and think, why would God show me something about himself, the life he wants, his will concerning something? or a way in the Christian life I had never seen before? Why would he show me something heavenly that would cause me such great persecution on this earth that the choice I have to make is either to stay true with God and endure it or to modify what I've heard so people won't persecute me anymore? What is it about revelation that makes us persecuted? There would be a lot of people, I suppose, in Christian circles who would say, don't show me anything. Because there's a natural distaste in all of us to be rejected and to be persecuted, to be maligned and put down or verbally abused in some way. Nobody wants that. And yet the Lord says, remember the former days in which after you were illuminated. You endured. You didn't have to endure, but something about the revelation compels you to hold on to it. But if you hold on to what he shows you, you're going to have to resist something that's against it. We talked about that Sunday. But there was something about not only the fact that he called you to be his child, but that what he shows you, you just know, you just know this is a treasure. It's a pearl of great price. It's something very important. I can't let go of this. God has made it clear to me that this is his will. He illumined me, opened my eyes so I can see. And therefore, if it's going to cost me a job or a situation in the community or rejection by some group, then I guess that's the price I'm going to have to pay because I'm not going to let go of the Lord. And he defines this persecution here. He says you were made a gazing stock. You know, people hiss at you and they point you out and they ridicule you. They talk about you because you're so different maybe than you used to be, the, you know, the former days. And something has happened in your life that's made you different than the way they once knew you. And they don't really like what they're seeing now. now. Before I go on, let me give a definition. You know, I like to do that. 
about the word clue and clueless. Now, the word clueless, I just define as uncertain, not sure. In Webster's Dictionary, he gives two definitions, and this is where the sermon is going to come from, two definitions of the word clue. And the first one is something that guides through an intricate maze of difficulties. Something that guides through an intricate maze of difficulties. The second definition, similar to that one, says a piece of evidence that leads one to a solution of a problem. Now, if you take from both of those sentences key words, you take from the first definition the word something. You know, something that guides through an intricate maze of problems, uh, difficulty. Well, we all experience difficulties. Whether you're a Christian or not, you will face difficulties in this life. There's things you don't know what to do with. You're not sure how you should handle this. Don't know what you should say to somebody. Don't know what you're going to do if such and such comes to pass. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And a clue is a something that you get. Maybe it's some advice. Maybe it's a Christian. It's revelation from the Lord. Something becomes a key as to how you can make it through that difficulty, how you can solve that problem. That would be a clue. And the other definition, the second definition, a piece of evidence. You take the word a piece of evidence and the word something and put them together and we conclude that this is what's missing in Christians' lives. It is my firm belief, based on 40-some years as a Christian, having talked to thousands of people at one time or the other in my life, having preached several thousand sermons and worked on several thousands of ideas to declare it is my humble opinion that in Christendom, the average Christian in the average good church is clueless about spiritual matters. They're just clueless. They're unable to deal with their problems. They're unable to solve their situations. They do not know how spiritually to cope with most of the things they face, most of them. You can teach them a lot of things about the Bible, they don't get it, and therefore the only solution they have to their problems is the world, or the psychology of the world, or the wisdom of the world. That's what they pay good money to back up their life with. That's what they use to cope with fear. Something they can fall back on in this world, even though they have a Bible that far exceeds the world's solution to problems, the Bible gives us something better than that. It says we're seated in heavenly places. Greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world, that we can do all things through Christ, that he will bless us as we go out and when we come in and no weapon that's formed against us shall prosper. But they're clueless, and I mean that kindly. They're clueless about what that means. They wouldn't know how to apply that in their life Without being taught, they would never know what that means. When you talk about trials, they really don't know what you're talking about unless you're in court somewhere, you've done something wrong and you're about to get put in jail. They've never heard it taught as a Christian problem. You, know, you have trials. You must overcome things. They don't know what that means. 
And again, I'm saying this kindly because I don't mean anything ugly about it. I'm just trying to make a sincere, serious point that Christendom today is making it bigger and brighter. And the people in that system of Christianity today are probably more clueless without a solution to their problems. Nothing's coming out of it that helps them live the life that God wants them to live. They just don't see it. My daddy was a Catholic. He was an active church person his whole life. Catholics are pretty dedicated. A lot of them are. My daddy was. He went to Mass, and, and he was always willing to help and be on the good side of the priest. And they always used him to do something, fix the furnaces and the, whatever the system, plumbing. He was busy and active in church and Catholicism his whole life, and yet nothing that I saw growing up in that family. I never saw anything to help solve the problems he had in his life that involved God or his word. Never saw it. Didn't have a clue as to how to apply Christian principles to his life. Didn't know how. He was clueless. Heard the words, heard the phrases, probably. Just being around people, 60 years, you're going to hear something. But as far as how to live the life, he didn't know how. Now, in verse 32, the word I mentioned a while ago is a key word. It's the word illuminated or illumined or enlightened to shine upon. We just simply call it God opening your eyes and giving you light. And the light that you see is something you've never seen before. You've read it many times. But just because you read the Bible doesn't mean you can see what it says. But when God opens your eyes, you can see it. And by seeing it, I mean you can understand it. You know what it's about. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that gives you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And when you see that, you don't have to ask anybody what that means, for you know what that means. That's what the word illumined means. It means that your eyes are opened. Of course, it also means from this point on that you are required to live that. That to whom much is given, much is expected. He that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not to him it is sin. Now, a lot of new prospective Christians don't want to hear that. They don't want to know that what you teach them, they have to live it. Because that implies guilt if you don't. Which is the way it should be. That keeps us from just sinning without a problem. See, in modern Christianity today, there is little emphasis on teaching or instruction in the Word. Now, I know you hear me say that, and oh, he says it every week. I might. We got weeks coming. I might say it a whole lot more. But I'm saying this. It is a lack of instruction out of the Word of God, which leaves good people clueless. They don't know. They watch you, or they hear you talk about what you believe, and they say, oh, I don't know about all of that stuff. And they really don't know about all that stuff, because it's stuff. It's not a revelation to them. It's in their Bible. Well, I, you know, I don't want to get that wrong and blah, 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 blah. So they don't teach. And people basically, by nature, Christians, especially in big churches, didn't go to church for somebody to teach them. They don't want to take pencils and paper to church and take notes so they can remember what was said or so they can go home and search out the scriptures to see if it is true. They're willing, because they are Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, and so forth, they're willing to take the word of the preacher as truth for whatever he said, because surely, if a man has a 
college degree and a seminary degree and maybe hours of study after that, surely he's all right. And surely God would not allow all of us to be misled in some way. Surely he would declare unto us the whole counsel of God, maybe? Maybe? We're just glad we've got him. He's got a good record and so forth. So whatever he says is fine with us. But they're never taught. Because as I keep saying, as I keep saying, the preacher knows that because people don't go to a church meeting to be instructed and informed and taught on how to live the Christian life or the preacher insists that you live this way because you know that people recoil from that. They don't like it. And they know by nature that if somebody doesn't like something you say, they won't listen to what you have to say. And let's face it, heads are money. I mean, color it any way you want to. If people quit coming, we lose money. If more people come, we gain money. So we want to make people happy so people will keep giving. You figured it out yourself. See, I'm not the only one guilty now. And that's the way the system works. So it's the system that manipulates people to take for granted what they are hearing without the need for learning it myself. And consequently, in your personal life, when you're facing problems in your marriage, with your children, at job, money problems, credit, whatever problems people face, they really don't know how to handle it spiritually. See, if the mind, Paul wrote, if the mind is not renewed, how can I know the will of God? And if I don't know the will of God, how can I serve God in truth? I can't. I have to know the will of God. The only thing I can believe that God will do is his will. So teach me thy will, thy way. But if you don't teach me his will, but you give me little stories and you make me feel good and it's just a good atmosphere and surely Jesus is walking the aisles with us this morning, but there's no word in this system then I'm victimized by the system. And when it comes my turn in life to face my difficulties, I face them clueless as to what I can believe that God will do. Therefore, I become uncertain. And when I'm uncertain, I have no confidence in what he said. If I have no confidence in the word of God, I have no faith. Because if faith is anything, it is the certainty that God will do what he said. But if you don't teach me that, I'll never know that. I'll be a good member. I'll be involved in all the departments in the church. And you see, the modern church today, as I see it, the emphasis is on involvement. It's the team spirit. It's the common good, like church growth. Let's get involved in making the community a better place to live. Surely that's good. We don't need to be in here studying the Bible and, and taking notes. Let's get out here and let's show the world what Jesus can do through his followers. And let's make this community a better place than it was before we got here. The mindset in the last days, that's it religiously. We don't need all this teaching. I've heard people stand here and say that. Y'all know more than anybody I know. They thought that we don't know half of what we all know. That's just the evidence of how little anybody knows. 
But if you tell me I know enough, I'm have to say, folks, I know very little, very, very little. But knowing very little about God is like a crumb of bread. Man, if any kind of disease can be healed by the crumb that falls from the table, dogs eat the bread, you've heard that. And you could tell me that if that dog gets a little piece of that crumb that you can drive demons out, well, I'll take the crumb too. <laughs> Give me the crumb. But if you deny me that, and you just make me happy and give me that team spirit. And you eliminate the need to live a holy, godly life. If you take away from me the very deeper life principles of discipleship, what that means. You just put on the church like I grew up in the disciples of Christ. I must be one because I go to one. And yet, I didn't even know what a disciple meant. It means a pupil, a learner, a follower. And I didn't know anything about Jesus, but it didn't matter because nobody else felt it was important. The big church in the end time, the modern end time form of Christianity goes for the greater goodness, the community outreach, the world outreach, the affecting God in politics, making the community a better place to live because we're here. And yet back to the basic thing where I started, but also it means that you individually, as you attempt to relate to God, as you attempt to have a wholesome and strong relationship to God, all you have are concepts. You really know very little about God. He's never really taken his yoke upon you and learned of him because a lot of things he's going to teach you are going to challenge the way you live now. That means you're going to have to change. And change in our text here means persecution. They weren't persecuted in the former days. It was after the word came into people's lives that they began to change. Now, what if somebody came to us, let's say you or me, Somebody you know, work with, or maybe a stranger on the street you've been talking to. After all, we are evangelicals, aren't we? Aren't we called evangelical? Whatever that means. We are evangelicals. And so somebody comes up to you, they know a little bit about your life, and they say, you know, I know that you're not only a church man, but you seem to live it. You seem to have something that not everybody in church places have. I think I'd like to get saved. What would you say to them? Well, just get in a department and join the world and you can be saved. No. What would you say to them? How should we inform people about the Christian life? As Christians, what should we tell people who want to be saved? In Acts 16, the guy said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said one thing. He said, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. So we would say, well, what is involved in believing? Ah, oh, now we got months of teaching. Because believing is just not mental assent to something that you heard or what somebody said. Yeah, I agree with that. Believing is a life. It's a verb. It's active. It does something. It's doing. It's a living life. You're not a believer if you're stagnant. You're not a believer if you're sitting around not applying anything that God is teaching you. If you're not applying it, you're not a believer. You're a hearer, but not a doer. 
This is what makes people uneasy, and this is why a lot of people neglect to tell those who want to become Christian, we don't want to tell them that. We'd rather mislead them because that makes them friendly to us. We don't want to tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. In our text, verse 32, the word endured is used. Endured a great fight of afflictions. Why? Why must we endure when God shows us something? Is it not this because what he shows us changes us if we believe it? If he shows me something and I believe it, which means I do it, then that changes me. What I used to do, I don't do anymore. And if I'm around you having done an old way and now I'm doing something new, you notice it. Well, why would that offend you? Why is it that people who used to know us are offended at a new way of living that we found? Why do they no longer fellowship with us? Why have we found ourselves not able to sustain lifelong childhood friendships? What happened? Turn to John 7. John 7. This is what happens, and this is what Jesus said would happen. John 7 and verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. Why would anybody hate Jesus Christ? Why would anybody hate somebody who did what he did for us? Is it because they don't believe the revelation and therefore consider him just a historical figure or perhaps a fraud? A made-up story about the resurrection? After all, they didn't see him rise. How do they know the one was Jesus? He only appeared to his disciples. The boys downtown never saw him. So how do they know a story's real? How would they know? Well, historically, we know this. If the guys knew it was a fraud, why did they die for a fraud? If he was still in the grave, why would they give their lives saying that he's alive when they know he's not? That's crazy. Or ignorant. So... Why would anybody hate Jesus? I'll tell you why they would hate Jesus, for the same reason they would hate you, if he is living in you. Because it's the same reason they hated him, the same reason they're going to hate you. Let's finish verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works or the way they live are evil. Would that offend people? If you pray before your meal down at the works place where you never prayed before, somebody's offended. And one of them will say, what are you doing? Say, well, I'm praying for my food. Well, why are you doing that for? Because I'm thankful. Well, I am too. Well, then we're both thankful. You don't have to do that in front of all these people. You're just trying to show off. I'm really not trying to show off. Next time, if you're sitting here, I'll pray like this and I'll eat my food. I really don't want to offend you, but I'll tell you what, God's going to hear me say thank you one way or another. And then you won't go along with the racetrack on the weekend or you won't steal things. Or somebody talks about how much they get on the job and, put it, and they notice you won't take anything. They saw you pick up some things you found and put it back on the table and now they know your goodness testifies against their badness. Badness a word. <laughs> Evil. Your life becomes a testimony. 
of the way it's supposed to be. You don't cuss anymore. They see you hurt yourself. God will see to it that you do something that you used to say, uh, 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 and he'll let that happen while they're watching. When I was coaching basketball, it happened far too often for me. I'm trying to coach a ball game, and I had a great, great passion for this. I mean, my heart and soul was in this. This way my mind would think all week long. And when a bad call was made by a referee before I was saved, I would protest. And when I got saved, it was a different kind of protest. I'd hear all those same old words inside wanting to come out. But you just suppress it. You crucify that stuff. The last year I coached basketball, we got beat by a team who shouldn't even been on the floor with us. And somebody said from the stands loud enough for me to hear. I still remember this. We were walking off the floor, got beaten. Too much Jesus on that team. Why would anybody complain about too much Jesus anywhere? I mean, that would solve any, every, all problems forever. And it will when he sets up his kingdom to be beatable problems. Too much Jesus? Why do they hate him? Why is there such a disgust at what he has to say? Why do people hate you for quoting the Bible? Why do they not want you to pray? Why was our last president so maligned because he prayed and said, God bless America? Why was that so offensive to people? Because there is a hatred in the God of this world of the one who is going to set up his kingdom in this world when he has subdued all things. And he hates it. He hates you for doing it. Jesus said, don't think that I alone am hated. If they hated me, they're going to hate you unless you hide your light under a bushel because your light or the revelation we're talking about, that's what causes people to notice that you're different. That's why they come against you to see if they can stop you from acting this way. And if they can, then they know that you're just like all the rest of them. Yeah, all them Christians, just, you know how they say it. Yeah, all them Christians, them sneaking deacons and all that. That's what they talk. But when you don't bow to all of that, I can assure you that somebody's watching. Our athletic director cleaned out my office. He said, well, sorry to see you go. He said, he said, I'll say this for you. And he was not by any stretch of the imagination a religious, spiritual, or Christian man. He wasn't a bad person. He just wasn't any of that. He said, I'll tell you one thing. He said, if I ever get religion, I want to get it the way you got it. Of course, I wanted to start talking to him, and it was, okay, that's, that's all. I just don't preach to me. But if somebody came to us, Brother Hamilton, I want to be saved. Would you tell him that you're going to be hated? We would say, well, no, you wouldn't want to tell somebody who wants to be a Christian they're going to be hated. Well, is that true? When is it true? It is true if you believe it and you live it. Right. Now, if you don't live it, you're not a Christian. So you say, well, you would be hated. Let me just read in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 12 and 13. It says, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. Why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. And the next verse says, marvel not, my brother, if the world hates you. The first death was based on hatred of somebody else's convictions and somebody else's rightness. They were killed because of it. So we're warned about it. You're already in John. Look in chapter 17 in Jesus' prayer in the garden. 
In verse 14, Jesus said, I have given them thy word, and the world hath what? Hated them. Let me ask you all a question. Does the world hate the content of this book? Then why is it the most popular book ever printed? There's more copies of this than anything that's ever been on this earth, the Bible. Then if that's true and it's the most printed, I don't know how read it is, the most popular single book that's ever been on the face of this earth, why is it that the contents are so offensive to most of the people who have one of these? Can you make the connection tonight that there's a dark power out there that wants to suppress any Christianity you have? Who wants to water you down and make you no different than they are? Who want to catch you in a fault or catch you in a wrong and tease you about it and tell you about it until you blow your stack and act like them so they can then say, you're no different than anybody else. You're all alike. It's the devil. That's what he does. Listen to it again. John chapter 17. In verse 14, I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The content of this book is powerful. This is what God uses to change your life. Not without the Spirit. You can read this book every day, and nothing's going to happen. But when the Holy Spirit, who sees your heart, and who changes the heart, when the Holy Spirit sees this, urge and desire to live according to this book, he begins to sit with you when you study. He speaks to you when you listen. He reveals it to you while you're concentrating. So I would say to the new Christian, you really want to be a Christian? The first thing you have to do is tell me why you won't be a Christian. Well, I'm so many years old and I, I need to get religious. Bad answer. Bad answer. You can't get saved. You get saved because of your sin. You're a sinful man, sinful woman. You're a sinful person. Not only are you a sinful person that's borne out by your statement, that, man, I've lived a bad life. I have. If a book was ever printed about all the things I've ever been, it'd be several volumes. And I would hide myself forever if anybody read any of it. Oh, well. I would say to that person who admits his guilt, what are you going to do about your guilt? Are you sorry you did it? Well, I wish I hadn't done it, but now, what about Jesus? You've got to bring Jesus into this equation. It's all about you right now and how bad you are, and you want to get free from this load of guilt you got, but it don't work like that. Jesus has to come down. He's the reason why you want to get rid of your guilt because he's the one you sinned against. He's the one you've offended. And even while you were so sinful, he's the one who went to the cross in your place. A sin offering. He was God's offering, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. You've heard that. He's the one who went on the cross willingly. God, he said, I do the Father's will. And he went on the cross for you. So that one day you could look upon him whom you have pierced. And your sins put him there. And you can bow your head and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because if you repent, it's a real deal. All right, now that you've repented, 
Now, let me give you some information about the Christian life. I'm not going to tell you to, to get one of these Sunday school departments and get in it and get in the community active service and, or get in the ecumenical improvement committee. What I'm going to tell you to do is to sit down and think about what's ahead of you because you're going to be hated for the choice you just made. And the reason you're going to be hated is because you're going to believe what God shows you. That means you're going to live like it's true. You're going to act like it's true. That's what believe means. And it means all your old associations and people around you, where you work, and they're going to hear about you. They're going to find out about you. And they're going to watch you and stare at you like a hole in the wall. They don't really believe you've got the real deal. Neither does the devil. In fact, when Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan, the very first thing that happened to him in Luke 4 and Matthew 4 was the Spirit after his baptism. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit of God took him to the wilderness to be tempted 40 days of the devil. I mean, right away he faces the devil 40 days. It was long and strong out there in the wilderness. So much so that God had to strengthen him at the end of it. I mean, he was at the end of his rope. God, though, knows how long your rope is, and he sent his angels to strengthen him. Jesus, he resisted sin. And so we're told that God's word is going to cost us a way of life that we got to give up, but it introduces us into a way that is glorious and is heavenly. Listen to it again. Look at the 14th verse again. He said, I've given them thy word. I've given them thy word. Can you find Matthew 13? Here's something about the word that was given. Verse 20. But he that received the seed, that's the word of God. He that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and immediately, anon is not a common word today, but immediately with joy received it. You know what that means so far. What caused him to be rejoicing? The Word of God. Because it promised eternal life, didn't it, and so forth? And a lot of people say, I want that, oh boy. And he got it, and he had joy. Now, notice. Yet he hath not root in himself. Now, he had no root. That is, he was not grounded. There was nothing to hold him fast. He was probably told, maybe, or thought that, you know, just follow Jesus around and go where he goes and sit where his disciples sit and listen to what he says and stay in this little pack. And whenever it's time to go to heaven, you'll go too. You can do all of that. You can go to church every week and be in the biggest church in America and active in all of its departments and never get rooted in the word. I've already said that. But the Bible says he hath no root in himself. He's just a member who attends church. He likes the atmosphere, likes the songs, likes the people he's around, likes the smiles and the happiness and the goodness, likes the good fellowship he has with people who are so positive in this life about trusting God, likes that. But himself, that doesn't mean he's rooted because he might be hoping he doesn't need to do that or something. Or he's too busy to study. Or he doesn't like to study. Or I never have checked out things. I don't read much. I'd rather listen. So he has no root. 
How long can you live rootless in the church? Five years? Ten years? You think it's possible that somebody could be active like this in a church like this for 15 years without being rooted? Watch out. Do you think it's possible to be involved and active in any church anywhere for a long time and one day get tired of hearing the word? Now, that's a sorry reason to quit anything. Well, they preach too much. They're taught too much, too much word. I've never heard anybody say that. I'm making that up. But what if it was true? Well, I just got tired of hearing the same old, same old. You mean to tell me that there came a day in your life that you finally got tired of the insistence of God on living on his terms? Well, it just keeps repeating it's the same old things. Is it not true that we have young people here that are learning? And they never paid attention when they were sitting out there and getting in trouble? Or when y'all haul them back in the back and haul them back out? They didn't listen. They're listening now. So those old stories that are old to you, they're just now getting it. So you repeat things. Yeah, well, I got tired of hearing it. Well, I'm sorry. I'm really, really, really sorry that you did. But I tell you this, you can hear one story 15 times, and it's the 16th time at a revelation concerning that. Not so much you heard the story, but a meaning that that story has personally to you comes to you. Now, if you give up and walk away from it, that never happens. It just doesn't happen. Of course I grieve about stuff like this. I don't take it personal. I used to. That was a long time ago. I don't take it personal anymore. I just know that I'm called to be here. God gave me something to say. I'm going to say it, hopefully without compromise and without regard of who's going to like it and who isn't. It's one thing we all need is for God to speak to us. All of us need that. We must all recognize that we need it because we're poor in spirit. We never get so much of this that we don't need any more. Oh, you all have been taught so much, you all need to go. In other words, you got so much you don't need anymore. There's one thing the spirit majors on. One thing Jesus said is necessary. One thing is necessary. You know what it is? Martha, Martha, thou art encumbered about so much. Only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen that good part of hearing the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word of God. He sent his word, Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent his word and healed them. My son, give attention, Proverbs says, to my word. Incline your ears unto my sayings. Let them not depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those that find them and health to all their flesh. That's how important the word is. That's the one thing that God said he will watch over to perform. He sent his word to this earth to accomplish that which he pleases and to prosper in the thing whereto he sent it. If we don't know what he sent it to do, it's lying in our laps. It never does us a dime's worth of good because nobody ever told us it was in there. And when they did tell us it was in there, nobody ever explained to us that it's for today and it's for me. Consequently, I see it, but I, I don't believe it. I don't live it. That's why we get together and teach so much. Some don't like that. I Man, I love it. I do. 
I really do because I know that it does work. Second thing, listen, Matthew 13, 21 again. No root. And then it says two things arise because of the word. Tribulation or persecution ariseth. Why? Because of the word. We've been talking about it. And by and by, the Bible says, he is offended. The word scandalazo for offended means that something you have confronted has become offensive to you and you stumble over it. It's also translated stumbling block. It's you're going along your merry Christian way because you've got it all figured out. You got it all pigeonholed and categorized and you got the Christian life down pat. And one day God begins to deal with complacency, loudmouthness, pride, indifference, complaining, murmuring. He begins to deal with you about some things and by and by you begin to see, whoa, 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 whoa. I know in my heart that that is right, but I also know that I'm going to lose money over this. Oh, man. And what would my friends think, which is a worldly attitude anyway? What would everybody think? Well, God will see to it, they think. Because he's going to change you. But if you're offended by the word and by the command to live on his terms, and you throw your hands up and you live an offended life, well, I don't know about all that stuff. And I, how many hundreds of them have we known, have I known in the past 30 years? They just quit. So easily offended, complain about what they heard, complain about what somebody said, complain about who said it, complain about they're trying to shove it down our throat, just crying about everything. They're offended. And the Bible says this guy here, by and by, he was offended because of the word, because when he started living the word, he was persecuted and he had tribulation. Would you tell a new Christian that you're going to have tribulation? If you're going to come to the Lord and you're going to live this life, you're going to have tribulation. John 16, 33. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. It's not going to just always go the way you want it to go. It just doesn't always work that way. Acts 14, 22 says, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom. That's how we make it. The world is not a soft place for Christians to go through. It's hostile. It's against us. The world and all of its designs are totally, totally against you. To lure you away from loyalty to God to loyalty to the world and the systems of man, which everybody follows. To trust in the same things I trust in. You drink the same thing, the same medicines, the same system. Do the same thing the rest of us. Don't be different. Because if you're different, we're going to single you out as some kind of a cult or something. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 3.12. He said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to believe what the Bible says? If you're willing to believe what God is showing us, then you're willing to suffer the consequences of it. You're willing. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, if you'll go back in the back of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 9. About your adversary, the devil, verse 8. 
the one we're facing, this prince of the power, this one who loathes your soul, who wants to destroy you, who wants to make you miserable and detestable. Concerning him, it says, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Afflictions here is not disease and sickness. It is pressure. It is just pressure. Just trying to choke you out. Stop you from going the way God wants you to go. Or listen at this one in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Are we promised to be heirs and joint heirs with Christ? But what is the condition that precedes it? If we suffer with him. What do you mean suffer? That's the consequences of living his life in a world that's against him. You're going to be marked out. The moment you say, Jesus saved me, you get a big bullseye, a heavenly bullseye, beautiful, beautiful colors and good design. A big bullseye is painted right on your back. And here comes the fiery darts of the devil. Doing their very best to take such a socially refined soul as you are. And then just change you into some old religious something or another. That's the consequences of it. You can't live the way you used to live. Your conscience is changing. You can't say the stuff you used to say. You can't wear what you used to wear. Go where you used to go or act the way you used to act. You can't do that anymore because your conscience bears witness that all of that is wrong. It's sin. And he that knoweth to do good and does it, to him it is sin. So because you esteem God greater than your own pleasures, you crucify this stuff. And we yield ourselves to God. And the consequences are that we esteem that he is worth all of this. There's a verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I think, verse 12. If we suffer, we shall also... Well, the word suffer in verse 12 is the word endure in verse 10. In the verse 10, you see the word endure. Well, it's the same word that's in verse 12, which I believe... While other applications, you can use the word suffer, in verse 12 it should be endure. And it would say this, if we endure, we shall reign with him, which is what Romans 8, 17 says. Now, young Christian, you want to go to heaven? You want to serve the Lord? You want to be a Christian? Are you willing to endure all the hostilities that are going to come against you? Are you willing? Oh, you're not going to be liked the way you want to be liked and yet dream that the world formed in you is going to come crashing down in light of the obvious truth that you can't do that and serve the Lord when that misleads you away from God. You can't do it. I know you want to be president. I know you want to be president really, really bad. But you cannot be president and be a Christian. Well, I'll let you think about that. But I want to believe, okay, Philippians chapter 1. Look towards the end of the chapter. Philippians 1, 29. What a wonderful verse. It is not only given unto you to believe on him, but also what? To suffer. Well, who would say, praise the Lord for that? Well, nobody wants to suffer. All of you that enjoy suffering have deliverance after a while. It's just that we come to the place where I don't mind doing it because I know the purpose behind it. Y'all hear me? 
I don't mind the suffering that I'm going through because I know why I am suffering. Listen to this verse. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into different kinds of trials, knowing this. Well, you count it joy because you know something. You don't like the pressure. You don't like being rejected. You don't like maybe the pain of being locked up in jail or getting ready to get your head cut off. Revelation 2. What you know is that my allegiance to God, my willingness to believe Him and follow Him wherever He leads me and to count my life as nothing but His purchased possession means that wherever I go, whatever I do, I'm going to do it to His glory. And if I have to suffer the loss of all things, as Paul said, for this, so be it. He said, I think in the same book, he said, I suffer the loss of all things just to know him. To know his sufferings and to know the power of his resurrection. That's lofty stuff. Paul said, I don't mind decaying in a jail when I can't get out of here and I was brought here by divine release. I'm in his will. Yes, I suffer this, I suffer that, I suffer that. So what? And you got this smile on your face, sitting in a jail cell, locked up, rats, nasty urine smell everywhere, and they're singing hymns. This is a guy who was enlightened and who was willing to live the life, and nothing could take him away from it. He wasn't afraid he'd lose his job or wouldn't get his loan. He didn't care what the world thought. He didn't care what they said, but he said, I don't want health insurance. I don't want anything from uptown to tell me how to live my life. I want God to take care of me. Oh, wait till that one comes up. I was in Frankfurt once and testified about that. I know what kind of questions they ask. I guess we just found you on the side of the road with your leg break. We just tell them to go on back to town. We can help me get up and make a phone call for me. We're just considered to be stupid people. We're so ignorant. Where's y'all's mind, they say? Well, it's being renewed. Sound like it's being washed. Well, it is. We're already brainwashed. I mean, the cleansing. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, verse 29, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. We could avoid all of it. All we have to do is what Christianity is doing as I speak. Modify all of this. Water it down. Take away the keenness of a two-edged sword. Blunt the edges so it doesn't cut. Make this high-tech, well-educated, end-time heralder of the word, the preacher. Find one that takes that sharpness out of the sword, who takes the guilt of your sin away from you, who doesn't preach about sin because that disturbs people so much. I translate that, it would cost you money is what it would cost you. It's just people don't want to live in such a way that they have to suffer for it. Where's the abundant life? I'm talking about the cattle on a thousand hills, three cars in the garage, chickens in the pot. Well, it's in there. It's in there. You want to see it? Turn to Mark 10. Chickens in the pot. I don't know if it says chickens or not. But Mark chapter 10. 
Verse 28, Peter said, we have left all and followed you. That's what you're supposed to do. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mothers or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. That is, you left all of that behind your devotion to Jesus. Verse 30, but he shall receive a hundredfold when? In heaven. It says now in this time, doesn't it? A hundredfold now in this time. Houses. Does it say plural? And brethren. And sisters and mothers. I've been mothered by lots of people. <laughs> mothers and children and lands. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What do you say? With what? I don't want that. Tell me why that's a mistranslation. The translators added that. Your Lord, Jesus Christ said in this present time, if you're willing to put Jesus first before anybody, anything, you put Jesus first. Live devoted to him and put everything else in light of what this devotion to him requires of you to lovingly do to them. But you put him first. And God in this present time will add to your life a hundredfold. He mentions houses and mothers and brothers and sisters. Look at you. You're my brothers. I don't know my mother had so many children. Look at the family I got. With persecutions. Does your Bible say that? With persecutions. That keeps you honest. It takes the sheen off that new car. It takes some of the sheen off of that big fancy job or that inheritance you got of thousands and thousands. And it just takes all the shine off of it because that can't get you in heaven. It cannot make you spiritual. None of the things that are gifts and part of your inheritance, all the blessings that God gives to man on this earth, none of it gets you in heaven. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you these things, but you've got to keep it all in focus that Jesus Christ and his loyalty is such that you put all this stuff behind you too. If he asks you to walk away from it, you've got to walk away from it. And I know you can do that. You can. You can bid it goodbye and not even look back with sorrow or disgust or regret or anything. Just walk away from it. But evangelical Christianity today tries to avoid all of the costs that you have to pay. Almost nobody anywhere on the TV or in Christian circles, almost no Christians talk about these things. Almost none of them. They talk about politics. They talk about the world. They talk about this. They talk about that. They almost never talk about these spiritual promises how you can apply spiritual truth to your family, to your job, to your life, to your body. In fact, I want to come to a close. First Peter chapter 4, if you go back there, young Christian man, you want to serve the Lord or lady, let me tell you something. You're going to be hated. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. You're going to be maligned and gossiped about and talked about and rejected and spoken of as evil. You want that? No, I want to go to a church where you get to have fun. Well, now, fun ain't in the Bible, but you can have fun. How many picnics have we had over the years here? I never saw anybody yet sit there and say, when's the sun going down so I can go home and get away from all this fun? Sometimes you have to run them off. Say, we're getting ready to go to bed. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. He said, Beloved... 
This is what I'm going to say to my perspective, new Christian. If you want to be a Christian, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which are to try you as though something strange has happened to you, but rejoice in as much as you are partaker of Christ's what? Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Bear with me. Verse 30 says, but rejoice in as much as you are. That word partaker is our word for fellowship. Koinonia, or koinonio, it means fellowship, togetherness. Who's suffering here? Well, you're experiencing it, but who are they after? Christ. The very hatred that was assigned him for who he was because he lives in you is still assigned to him. They can't reach him, but they can reach you. So the pressure you're going through and the turmoil and the difficulty and the sometimes that helpless, lonely, who cares feeling, the heaviness that you experience, those are his sufferings. He's called you to a life that will bring that into it. He has. You want to be a Christian? You just want to have fun? You're in the wrong church. There's plenty of places that will tell you you don't have to do anything but just sit in a pew and be a good member and join things and raise your hand when you're supposed to and vote right and you're all right. I won't tell you that. Because I believe there's a whole lot more to your loyalty to Jesus than just the idea of raising your hand and fitting in a big system. I believe there's a life you got to live. When you put your hands to the plow, it's not the preacher's hands to the plow, it's your hands to the plow. He says, don't you look back, because if you look back, you're not fit. Whew. Boy, that brings conviction. Look at verse 13. Rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, because when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Now, if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. Really? Yeah, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first began with us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the word, the gospel of God. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, whew, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to, uh, oh, is that a misprint? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to, I don't know if I can get that out. I may say it in tongues. <laughs> is it ever the will of God that you suffer? Well, I'm asking you, is it? Let me read it. I think I can say it this time. I think I'm ready. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. What did Jesus say to Paul when he knocked him off of that horse on the road to Damascus? Remember what Jesus said to Paul when he was going to Damascus to kill Christians? He yanked many of them out of their little prayer meetings and had them killed on the spot. Paul, the apostle Paul, he was a killing machine. That's why he said, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the worst of sinners. Oh, yeah, he yanked them out and cut their heads, whatever they did, how they killed them, stoned them or sorted them, whatever they did. Paul, 
He was on his way to Damascus to do it. And Jesus, a bright light, bam! The horse may have reared up if he was on a horse. If he was walking, he fell to the ground. Remember what the voice said to him? He said, but the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Was that the will of God for him? Did it cost him his life at the end? He died because of this. His life ended because of a choice he made to follow Jesus who told him, you will suffer great things for my sake. You're a chosen vessel and you're gonna pay the price for it. But I know you won't quit. I know you won't turn back. Jesus appeared to him in Acts 23. He's sitting in that jail cell. But he said, be of good cheer. Here's Paul with his hair hurting. They've been yanking on him, beating on him. These Pharisees and Sadducees, they've been hurting him. Soldiers had to drag him out of their midst. They were gonna kill him. Dragged him out, put him in jail. And Jesus comes to him and says, hey, Paul, be of good cheer. The worst part's coming. It'll be over in just a few years. You're going to Rome. You're going to be locked up for the rest of your life. No more running around. No more missionary journeys. You're going to be locked up the rest of your life. It'll give you a chance to write some books. And they're going to die. They're going to cut your head off. Whatever they did. Paul said, praise the Lord. You see, God couldn't make... Today, I don't know if he could, that many people that he could choose that would commit themselves that much. So I asked my seeker friend here, now that I'm telling you, if, if you want to be a Christian, you're going to have to believe God. And the consequences of your faith in God is persecution, trouble, tribulation, and so forth. And you're going to be hated. You want it? Because you see, the other side of the coin, let me clue you in eternal life forever with Jesus. Streets of gold, they say, and all of that, and every day after a million so-called years, there's no time, but after a million of our years there, every day is still a brand new, fresh new day. All things are new every just stick it out for this little short time of life like a vapor of smoke. It's gone. Hang on. Love him with all of your heart. Serve him. Keep your hands on the plow. And you're going to have eternal life. You want that? I would say to him, I'm saying to you, you bow your head. Let's get in the kingdom. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, if there's anybody here tonight that has never been a Christian, never made the decision, has never intelligently and honestly confronted their sins and the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you have made them aware tonight of the cost of Christianity. That nobody in this room would put their hands on the plow without, as Jesus taught in Luke 14, without counting the cost first. And I pray that everyone that does and who is willing will never look back. For those who watch this in the electronic world, for those who hear this around the world, may there be a deep and honest and sincere approach to Jesus Christ 
and esteem him with preeminence over anything and everything else. Grant that kind of courage to those who are called your disciples. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.